Welcome to Across the Margin Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shields. Thank you for joining us today. Today's episode is another dedicated to the global emergency that is climate change, a subject we revisit time and again here and will continue to do so because, as you will hear from today's guest, for a myriad of reasons, one of the most important things you can do about climate change is to talk about it. That guest, who I am extremely thrilled and honored to have on the program today, is Eric Holthouse. Eric is a leading journalist on all things weather and climate change, who has written regularly for the Wall Street Journal, Slate, Grist, and The Correspondent, where he currently covers our interconnected relationship with the Earth's dynamic climate. I recommend heading over to The Correspondent and immersing yourself in Eric's work. It's also very informative and eye-opening. He just recently released what is widely considered the first authentically hopeful book about climate change, entitled The Future Earth, A Radical Vision for What's Possible in the Age of Warming. In this book, which will be the focus of this episode, expertly maps out how humanity could actually reverse the short and long-term effects of this looming catastrophe. I believe The Future Earth is a powerful work, And the reason being is that the first step to creating the change that we need is imagining that it is possible. And Eric's bold vision presented in the book does just that. It presents a picture of a world worth fighting for. Undoubtedly, it is easy to become overcome with despair and is absolutely terrifying contemplating the enormity of the challenge we face combating climate change. But as Eric points out in his book, we are still here, which means we haven't lost the fight. In fact, as the future Earth tells us, we are all born at exactly the right time to change everything. Right now, as scientists and climate journalists just like Eric are telling us, we sit at a precipice. It is clear now that the world we believed we would all be living in one day is gone. With that fact established, it is a unique moment in time where we're given the occasion to reimagine everything and to share ideas with each other about what our fossil fuel-free future could look like. In that way, this extreme crisis can also be viewed as an opportunity. The Future Earth is a special book for many reasons, and one of those reasons is it makes it clear that the climate movement is about compassion. It is about looking out for each other. It's about equality and opportunity for all. I truly can't overstate how important I believe Eric's book to be, and I strongly encourage you all to take the time to read it. It's one that encourages us all to enter into a deeper relationship with the earth as conscientious stewards and reaffirm our commitment to one another and a shared humanity. In our conversation, Eric and I explore a bevy of critical ideas present in the future earth, such as the idea that the climate movement is intrinsically woven into social and racial justice movements. We discuss the concept of a circular economy and the power of storytelling and climate activism and a whole lot more. Uh, get the book, read it, live it. Uh, it's so important. It's really, really something else. And I think you will truly enjoy this interview with the author of The Future Earth, Eric Holthouse. Come on. 
podcast. Thank you so much for coming on the program, Eric. The, uh, the future Earth is outstanding and important, and I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to talk to you about it today. Thank you so much. Um, I, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's sort of remarkable to see um, a book go out in the world that has been only in your head for like six years. <laughs> Maybe like two other people have read the entire thing one being my partner and the mm. other one being my editor. So people that were obligated to read it um, now. It's a real tangible thing yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. So uh, just to just to kind of get going, there's so many things I kind of want to touch on because it really encapsulates a lot um, of the movement. It's, it's, it's wild how much you fit in this book, but uh, it's surely hopeful. I hear a lot of people talking about that, about the book. Um, and it's, you know, fortuitously so as the movement needs hope. But uh, true to form, I mean, we're talking about climate change. So your book definitely ruminates on, and, and particularly as it begins, um, some extremely hard truths. And um, one aspect of that that uh, I find very compelling and important and um, I believe is often under discussed is the mental health toll is taken on people. And I wonder if you could kind of speak on this, the global mental health crisis being caused by climate change to kick us off here yeah i mean i just don't really have an analog for anything like this that has happened before i mean well now i would say if i was writing this book now i would talk about um the pandemic and since that this is a global mm -hmm. shared event that is happening that is just so uh filled with grief um all around the world we are losing what we thought was quote normal life and i think that for people who've been really focused on climate we've been feeling that way for a long time that there's really no going back to the world that we thought we had it's sort of a weird disconnect when you are out in public and i don't know if it actually made it into the final version of the book or not, but i i just remember there was this one time when i just went well you know it was deep into writing um, and researching and interviewing for a few days and then made a trip to Target and I was like, holy, like, this world is still here. Like, it's still out there and I can't <laughs> imagine anything ever changing it. And it was just like a really hopeless yeah. moment. And like, I'm not so anti-consumerist to think that, you know, people, like, we, we all need to be able to provide for what keeps us going and watching Netflix and, you know, buying plastic toys for our kids. Like that's part of it, probably at least in this trend transition few decades, but it just was, it's just sort of some sometimes shocking to realize how there are really only a few people that feel obsessed with climate and, it feels like everyone else is just going about their lives without caring at all. And that's not really true. I mean, if yeah. you look at polling data, concern over climate change, even in the pandemic, is now at an all-time high. So we care. Everyone, like almost everyone, you like look around, you know, if I were rewriting that section now of the book, I would say like, look around this target. Everyone here also cares about climate. Like, they're just sort mm -hmm. of trapped in this world that they don't really even want to be in because we don't really see a way out or an alternative. So I don't know. I feel like putting out a vision that is plausible, that's based in science, that is grounded in 
diversity of experiences from all around the world, I think is something that is very necessary right now. So I was, it was a real privilege to be able to write that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, you look around sometimes and you're like, you know, why isn't everyone freaking out? But I mean, you know, we're, we, we, they might be. And, and like you said, the polls show that that is the case. And, you know, when it comes to that um, fear, that overwhelming thing, it, it, is, it is easy for kind of like a, par- you know, kind of feel paralyzed about, you know, what to do next. And that's why some, uh, the hope that's in this book and the, and the future, the, the look at the future it offers is, is really helping because, you know, hope can quell anxiety and that can lead to more action. Um, so you kind of alluded to it already, this idea, um, that it's time or even like past time to reckon with the a loss of a world that many, that me included, be, uh, believed would always be there. Um, and, kind of grieve for it and come to terms with this loss. But following that, we are afforded the chance to truly reimagine everything. And I love that's kind of like the, the you know, backbone of this book, this reimagining of everything. So it seems you are presenting the idea that this moment in time, as much as it is a crisis, and that's truly the case, it's also an opportunity. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, I think we are in this space where pretty much anything is possible. So we have especially now in sort of like the the pandemic world, we have realized what rapid change could look like. We don't need uh, incurable disease to, t- to tell us that that change was necessary. Um, and the change that we would put um, in place, I think if it was focused on justice in a zero carbon world, would look way different than the changes that we've put in place as a result of the pandemic, but it gives you an idea of the scale of what what we're capable of. Like we are capable of moving much more quickly on something yeah. than we thought ever pop mm-hmm. that than we ever thought possible. So, um, I think recognizing that we are in this transition period in human history is the first step to understanding what comes next. So. And that's where really like sitting with the grief and loss of, of what it means to be in um, the climate emergency, what it means to be in the mass extinction, what it means to have disasters um, around the world with leaders who don't really care about it. It makes you realize that that change is going to have to come no matter who is in charge. The change is going to have to People making that change is gonna, are going to have to listen to science because that is sort of, to me, that's sort of the guiding force in this whole time is that we can't escape the, you know, the laws of physics. You can't negotiate with the fact that we're going to have to sharply reduce emissions if we want to stabilize the ice sheets or if we want to prevent heat waves that are so intense that it, they become deadly for an, any able-bodied person walking outside, which is predicted, you know, by even the middle of the century in some of the warmest places in the world. So we know that there will be radical change that happens over the next few decades, but it still hasn't happened, yet, which means we still have a chance to shape it. Yeah, I love there's a quote um, in the book. I think it's by Samantha Earle, the philosopher, and she mentions how during normal times, um, you know, we lack critical awareness and we lack the capacity for radical change. And that's kind of what you're speaking to there that um, and, and, you know, that actually that, you know, that 
and you touched on it too, that, that speaks to COVID as well and, and just what you can imagine happening in the change. And so I, I'm, I'm hoping that this, you know, both the, the climate change awareness and, you know, the, the coronavirus awareness, you know, leads people to believe that, you know, we, the, this change is, is so possible. Um, so you state throughout your book and, and emphatically in the epilogue that the single most important thing we can do about climate change is, uh, is to talk about it. Why so? Yeah, I mean, I think that's where the root of of the change will happen. I think, you know, if we had that knowledge, you know, to go back to the weird target example, if you had that knowledge that you were all working um, alongside your neighbors rather than, you know, in conflict with them, even real or imagined conflict, were more in dialogue with with people in your family and, and your loved ones to know that, you know, chances are if you're listening to this, um, you're probably the person in your uh, friend circle who is most concerned about climate change. So <laughs> I think it's, it's time to just sort of own that and realize, like, you're not mm-hmm. working as an activist or as, like, a, as a, as a, like, a vegan tree hugger, um, Although, you know, like I am aspiring vegan, um, realize that 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 sometimes the way that um, environmental actions have been portrayed is are are sort of intentionally intended to be divisive in order to reduce their uptake. Um, I feel like if we were a little bit more aware that um, every single person has a role to play, no matter what it is. Um, it would make the change happen quicker. Um, at the same time, I feel very strongly that we need to focus all of our energy on people who are who are like-minded and people who will be able to go out into the streets and and sort of shut down the system if necessary. Yeah. So um, there's also an interview with Erica Shenoweth, who is uh, a political science professor at Harvard, who has done uh, work. Uh, studying social movements of the last hundred years and saying that her work found that it takes about three and a half percent of the population to be part of a nonviolent resistance movement to sort of opt out of society and and be um, to in in to be um, sort of visible in their protest uh, to get large-scale change. And in every single case where that number has been reached, the protesters have had their demands met. I was definitely going to bring that up. I'm so glad you you brought that up, the 3.5%. I did not know that. And it was just, I found that very, very hopeful. And, you know, just the fact that, um, I guess that that would equate to 11 million people in the United States. And, you know, that, that honestly, um, it not only gave me hope, but it got me fired up to want to spread the word and, and keep keep things moving. But you but you were saying? Yeah, I was saying that that, that number was passed in New Zealand, New Zealand last yep. fall with the school strike movement. And they with, within a few weeks, they passed a, a comprehensive climate legislation. So, so cool. Yeah, change is always closer than you think. And I think mm-hmm. that the people who will force that change to happen are the people who care the most. So I don't yes. think the goal should be trying to, you know, influence your uncle who is a climate <laughs> denier. It should mm-hmm. be more of like 
getting together with your friends and sort of plotting about what you can do next uh, about that, that would sort of draw attention, more attention to the movement. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that 3.5% number really stuck with me. I've talked to many people about it um, since. Um, Repeatedly throughout the book, there's this idea that's truly crucial to the movement, and that is... um, you know, the, the climate movement is entirely intertwined with social movements calling for equality for all, that it's, that it's really impossible to separate the climate um, emergency from the long struggle for social and epi- economic um, justice. I was wondering if you could speak on how that's all connected. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, the way I've thought about it is that climate um, is sort of a subset or a symptom of a larger problem of injustice rather than sort of the main problem that I'm working on. Um, And I think once I made that realization, it sort of reframed the kinds of voices and the kinds of stories that we need to be telling about what what it is that we're even doing. So, yeah, and I think that has become a lot more apparent in the the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement this year. Uh, You can see organizations like the Sunrise Movement who have fully aligned themselves with the movement for black lives and Mm -hmm. are, you know, tweeting about racial justice just as often as they're tweeting about carbon emissions now because they realize it's the same problem. It's a problem of these people's lives are considered valuable and these people's lives are not considered valuable. And that just can't really exist in a civilized society. So as long as we have injustice to that degree, we're not going to be able to prioritize um, a better world for everyone. Yes, exactly. Um, that's kind of uh, leads me to, to another thing I found very fascinating in the book, and that is um, the idea of ownership as a problem. And instead of how, you know, building and forging relationships uh, built with consent, um, you know, ownership has led to so many issues, whether it's in the, um, you know, social struggles throughout time, um, misogyny, racism, uh, colonialism, and, and, and in the environmental movement. I was wondering how you can uh, talk about the, the ideas of ownership and or consent in, uh, in this movement, in the climate movement. Yeah, I think that, um, uh, I mean, I think the climate movement itself has been dominated by um, white men for too long and sort of with my identity as a white man, I realized that in writing this book, I needed to be extremely conscious of that and understand that the voices that I chose to elevate were um, designed to sort of tell a different story than traditionally what the climate movement has been about. I just think that that is a reason that we have failed for so many decades is that We've been elevating the wrong uh, voices. It's a great point. That's a really, really great point. And you did, um, you know, the the section about Greta was really, really special. And, um, you know, you alluded to the fact that just her being in this position where, you know, she she has a strong, powerful voice that's affecting a lot of people. That also shows, I mean, this is about reimagining everything. That's, um, you know, proof positive that the old rules don't apply and that that. That's really affecting, and I, I really appreciate that angle you took right there because that's important. We do. We need new voices. We need diverse voices. It's it's really really important. Um, so to kind of continue on the idea of just reimagining everything, um, 
I love uh, I love that quote um, about uh, capitalism that kicks off the. Uh, 2030 to 2040 um, radical stewardship section of the book by Ursula K. Uh, Le Guin. But this chapter begins to envision some beautiful things um, post-capitalism that could occur. This is uh, something I've seen you talk about uh, in many articles be, uh, besides it, seeing in this book how life can be richer and in, um, in a future that's that's uh, you know not not burdened by this idea of, of capitalism. Um, I was wondering if you talk about that a little bit. How how so? How how can life be better? Um, you know, structured in a different way. Yeah, and I think that this is sort of the roots. So if we have in the 2020s, if we have a movement focused on um, justice and self determination and um, human rights, uh, then I think that we will end up in the 2030s in a world where people are just sort of demanding a more um, wide-ranging definition of what the economy actually is and who it, who it is designed to support. So I think if we, if we started to, you know, this is in the context, too, of where we have just completed a 10-year uh, decade of the Green New Deal, and we are... Um, we have guaranteed, you know, housing and healthcare for everyone, and we have uh, radically reduced carbon emissions not only in the U.S. but all around the world, and have peaked global emissions, um, and are starting to imagine what is coming next. Uh, so I think in that kind of a world, we have in the 2030s an opportunity to say what would a zero-carbon economy look like and function like uh, in, a, in a world where we sort of uphold uh, determination. So I think this sort of concept of 3D printing, <laughs> it's sort of like hokey, but it's like not only just of materials and parts that you might need, but um, also we're sort of creating and making knowledge where it's needed, um, where we are um, uh, sort of mm -hmm. rejecting the global supply chain uh, designed, which is designed for e maximum efficiency and maximum profit. We are sort of upholding this sort of messy, inefficient world where we have redundancy built into the system um, because that's what guarantees that people's needs are being met and that's what is actually more in line with planetary boundaries as well so we are we are um, working to build sort of an ecologically focused um, global economy that has sort of like multiple streams of inputs and outputs rather than um, a linear sort of top-down extractive model that we have now yeah you had a you had a very pointed line which which hit me in a way it was um um it was about capitalism it was capitalism is built for a specific few and then your next line was just probably not you <laughs> and kind of in that way i mean just the reimagining of what the world can look like in that way you know the radical changes in cities and i was recently thinking about how um you know what what a city looked like and and recently uh, New York has had, you know, maybe probably all cities have had a little glimpse of what, um, 
you know, a chance to see, see the cities without cars. And it's pretty glorious to, to tell you the truth and kind of like the, the way that they're, they're building, um, you know, they're, they're installing lots more out, outdoor seating and, and taking over streets. I've, I've really found it, um, heartening to, to, to be honest. And then also, um, there's this, the idea that, that, you know, because you really got me thinking in a, in a major way. Just what does the whole world look like? How do transport transportation systems look like? I loved when you were speaking on um, slower travel and what that could mean and how that could be made possible by um, you know four day work weeks and universal basic income and then you know making the journey of these long uh, travel uh, you know maybe across the sea or whatever just part of the fun and. I don't know. It's it's really really fun how you how this book makes you think about what could be, and that's a credit to to what you did here. Um, there's one big aspect we need to, to hit, um, and that's this idea this that that I think really was bringing home how this could work, and that's the idea of um, a cyclical economy. Um, what is this idea uh, of a cyclical economy, and how does it result in um, uh, a more flourishing world? Yeah, um, so this is this is uh, taking Kate Rayworth's example of a donut economy, where um, where we are at the same time respecting uh, and respecting um, human needs and human rights, the basics of not only survival but thriving on the inside. To me, I like I I had been describing it as sort of like recycling on steroids, to where we are are just focusing on, and this is um, quoting quoting um, Kate Rayworth uh, saying that anything that we currently think of as waste is really just a resource in the wrong place. This all can only happen if we sort of reimagine what it is we're doing here and give value to those um, resources, which currently they are valueless or, or with very low value, so they get dumped underground and buried. So, or like, you know, just discarded. If we are focused on increasing the value of, of activities that repair the, the world and repair social structures we will need to focus a lot more on things like care work or these sort of slower, currently undervalued forms of labor. You, uh, I think you have to get there partly through uh, re- redefining what it is our objectives are, like even on like a financial basis, sort of like the kinds of numbers that they would be reporting on TV would not be like GDP and um, stock market and Dow and all that. Yeah. Yeah. New evaluation. Yeah. Yeah. And which I don't totally uh, know what that would be, but it would be something Mm. like how many, how many people are getting their needs met today? Yeah, exactly. New, 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 a new set of priorities. And then that's not just about, you know, some, some number, some people getting rich, but exactly what, what's helping the people. It's, it's, yeah, that's, I mean, I, you know, 
we don't have all the answers. I think Greta even had a, 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 a good, you know, line about that. We, we, we don't know, you know, exactly what's going on. It takes a lot of courage to, to, to fight for something that we're not exactly sure what it looks like, but we know for sure what it doesn't look like. That's, that's kind of how I see it. Um, I want to, I want to mention one thing, uh, a tool that, um, you know, we can, because, you know, we mentioned that 3.5% and trying to get more people into the movement, but uh, you spoke on really um, uh, thoughtfully how storytelling can help the movement and break through dissonance. How can, how can storytelling, the power of storytelling and hu- humanizing uh, the whole climate change movement, how can that help? Again, like having those, having those conversations about the future, you will be able to um, understand what motivates people in such an unimaginable diversity of of ways that is not currently present in the current way that we think about the future. So intentionally elevating voices that are marginalized is, I think, the main way of telling new stories or telling a new narrative about the project of humanity, not just about climate change but what is like what's the whole point of everything because i think that's kind of what we're getting at here uh is that again climate change is a symptom of what happens when you don't have your priorities straight um so which has been clear now even more clear each month it seems like that we're sort of slipping away from what we want to be doing um, and there doesn't feel like a great handle to hold on to to pull ourselves through. So telling a new story about what it is that we're trying to do, I think, is is really at the core of one of the first things that we need to be doing to, to do this work right. Yeah, agreed completely. Um, a general question to kind of just uh, bring it home a little bit. Um, it's, it's it's amazing how how many takeaways and ideas and thoughts that I'm walking away with after after reading the book. It's just so much to chew on and um, in such a great way. And but I was curious, you know, when you set out or even just thinking about the book in hindsight at this point, um, you know, what would you personally want someone who read this book to walk away uh, thinking, or you know, what would be their their big takeaway from this book? I think the main thing is that you are such an important part of the story that the reader is a necessary part of of making all of this happen everyone you don't have to drop everything and change your life like to do the important work on climate that's necessary yeah like i said you you it will feel and look like just waking up and being excited about doing you know going about your day i feel like all of those things that get in the way of that excitement right now are things that need to change before we can do the transformative work on, on climate anyway. So advocating for racial justice or providing child care or... Uh, I, I think the only, the only change is that I would challenge everyone to say is like, tie, tie what you're doing to what someone else is doing. Tie, tie it to a broader search for um, for a, a, a just world that works for, for everyone that is 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 trying to um, to imagine what feels impossible and making it real. Love it. 
Absolutely love it. And then as you stated uh, so eloquently in the book, um, you know, we're, we're still here. So that's proof that the, the fight is not over. So I really, I, I, I appreciate so much, um, uh, you know, what you do, your articles out there in the world, your, your tweeting and, and anyone who's listening, you definitely uh, follow the, the Twitter, uh, Eric's Twitter um, that'll be in the show notes and this this book it really affected me it helps me reimagine what could be and I think that's invigorating so I really thank you for taking the time to come on here and uh, talk to us about it yeah thank you so much for inviting me yep and thank you everyone out there for uh, taking a trip with us across the margin podcast is in the loop the legion of osiris podcasts osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love get in the loop at osirispod.com